to another episode of the Sly Cooper Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Puzzle Podcast Network. We are previewing the Sacramento Kings, a team that I cover occasionally, a team that has a lot of intrigue for an organization that is probably projected to be a play-in team, but they have young players, they have interesting young players, and they have an exciting, another exciting rookie on their hands, and I could not, absolutely could not think of a better person to talk Kings with than my buddy, former Hashtag Basketball teammate, host of the Deep Dives podcast on Hashtag Basketball with Tyler Metcalf, writer for Nets Republic, writer for a lot of other places, Nick Agar Johnson. Kings super fan. Once again, mentioned it before, tortured Kings fan. But there is some room for optimism. I think this team could be a play-in team. I actually think they're very clearly a play-in team and it's an abject failure if they don't make the play-in as one of the uh, 7 through 10 seeds. And we're going to go over the roster player by player, their playing style, the coach, God, we're gonna we're definitely gonna talk about the coach. What to expect from Davion Mitchell? What to expect from second-year player Tyrese Halliburton? What to expect from now fifth-year player? Wow, fifth-year player De'Aaron Fox, and the leap that we are looking for from him this year. We go over it all, and of course, because the Kings have somehow throughout my life been intrinsically linked to the Sixers in some way, shape, or form, and they were again this summer, I'm going to ask my one Ben Simmons question because the Kings were connected to the rumors. So I had to ask him. But that's towards the end because, as we all know, this has gone on very long and we've plowed over the same ground. But we never really talked about it from the other side. So I ask him about the Kings' prospects of getting Ben Simmons, how he would feel, basically getting the fans' pulse on the Kings. And a team that has a lot of exciting young players, but I assume nobody watched a lot of. And so this is a great time to get primered on the Sacramento Kings. So without further ado, here's Nick Agar-Johnson. All right, joining me on today's show once again for the second time and many other times in podcasts that I had of yesteryear my current slash former uh I write a little bit again for hashtag basketball but we're hashtag basketball teammates he's a writer host of the deep dives pod writer of Nets Republic but more importantly he's going to help me preview his favorite team the team that has like my team, the Sixers, has given him torture at many different points of his life. We're talking Sacramento Kings with Nick Agar-Johnson. Nick, how are you doing, buddy? You know, this is the most optimistic, cheeriest time of the Sacramento Kings season, namely before the regular season begins. And the Kings <laughs> beat the Suns last night in preseason, so I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Uh, I... I'm doing all right. Um, can't say I had the same optimism with the Sixers preseason yesterday, but then when the game started, I was kind of hooked into it again. I was like, oh, which, wh- how uh, how small is our starting backcourt going to be? 
what's Andre Drummond going to look like? They've got the full Andre uh, Drummond experience from both spectrums on a few possessions. Um, and then I was like, up, oh, I'm back in it. And it's pre it's preseason. Everybody's happy. Everybody added 10 to 15 pounds of muscle. Everybody is excited. They think their team can win the championship. And uh, this team, the Sacramento Kings, however, I think is a little far off from that to be generous. But let's talk about the Sacramento Kings. And first, I want to talk about the preseason game last night against the Phoenix Suns. There really isn't much to take away from preseason, uh, that preseason game in particular, uh, Devin Booker and Chris Paul didn't play. DeAndre Ayton only played <clears throat> the first half. But Luke Walton was going full throttle with all of his players. I think there's a lot of lineup stuff to sort out there. Um, just real quick, we, Nick, when you look at yesterday's preseason game, um, what were what was a takeaway that you had um, is is there something you're looking forward towards during this preseason that can maybe give you some clarity on maybe some answers you're looking for when the regular season starts? So I think the biggest point from that preseason game was that De'Aaron Fox, Tyrese Halberton, and Davion Mitchell all played 24 minutes. So we got to see a whole lot of the Kings throwing out three-guard lineups, which was something yes. that Luke Walton and the team did a little bit last season, but certainly after taking Davion Mitchell with the ninth pick in the previous draft, it seems all but guaranteed that the Kings are going to roll out a ton of three guard lineups this season. It'll be interesting to see how that sort of shakes out in terms of minutes. For instance, I highly doubt that it's going to be 24 minutes for all three of those guys on a regular basis in the regular season. Also interesting that Buddy Heald was right behind them in terms of minutes at 23. And it'll be interesting to see how the guard rotation shakes out, assuming that there isn't a Buddy Heald trade, which certainly it seemed like during the offseason he would be going to the Lakers for about two hours before that trade fell through. It'll be interesting to see what the rotation looks like more in the regular season. But even though it is a preseason game and therefore doesn't matter all that much, the fact that Luke Walton was willing to trust Davion Mitchell and roll him out as much as the two main guys in Fox and Halliburton was certainly encouraging. And, you know, watching Davion Mitchell at Baylor last year and also sort of in drifts throughout the preseason process of training camp videos even if Davion doesn't have the ball in his hands that much, he's just such a menace on the defensive end that I find it hard to believe that he'll be out of the rotation entirely. So it'll be interesting to see what the balance looks like during the regular season between Fox, Halliburton, and Davion presumably coming off the bench. Yeah, Buddy Heald has kind of been in a lot of trade rumors the last, basically since Luke Walton got there, hasn't he? Like... It's, yeah <laughs> it's it's every season it's like oh buddy healed might be traded oh he has a tiff with luke walton um then last uh, like you mentioned this past summer he was literally hours away from being traded to the lakers but then when you read stories from the athletic uh russell westbrook kind of took matters into his own hands with that one um and it, a real funny anecdote he would have been traded to the clippers uh or that was the initial trade and Russ said, quote, hell no. At least that was a sourced report from The Athletic. So that, so Buddy Heald kind of, it, his faith was controlled by forces that were out of his control. But you mentioned the three-guard lineups. And 
they did play uh they did dabble with that a little bit last year especially after they traded for delon Wright and terrence davis um there is just more depth there than maybe a surplus of guards but you know in the first half yesterday luke walton threw out um well, they started – that was the one thing I wanted to see first was who was Luke Walton going to roll with in the starting lineup. And it's not set in stone, but it seems like De'Aaron Fox, Halliburton, Harrison Barnes, Marvin Bagley, and Rashawn Holmes is going to be the starting five with Buddy Heald coming off of the bench. Um, last year it was the other way around um, with Buddy Heald in there instead of Tyrese Halliburton mostly. Um, that was the usual starting five last year. But – then when they went to the three-guard lineup, the Walton subbed in healed first ahead of Davion Mitchell. So it ended up being a Fox healed Halliburton, Harrison Barnes with Sean Holmes lineup. Then in the second half, the Kings went on kind of a big run uh, when they when Walton decided to go with Fox, Mitchell, Halliburton, Barnes, and Holmes. And I just... James Han of James Ham of NBC Sports uh, California pointed this out, but I really think this, and it's not saying much because the Kings were putrid defensively last year, which we're going to get into. But putrid is an understatement. <laughs> yeah, I'm being very nice when I say putrid. Um, <laughs> but it seems like this Kings roster in particular has a little bit more, even though the wing depth is a little bit lacking behind Barnes and Mo, Mo Harkless. The Kings have enough – they have more length and more depth at the guard spot. And, you know, with Barnes and Mo Harkless, they're big and long as well. It just feels like the Kings have a better defensive personnel than last year to where they won't be so bad. And I forgot to mention Tristan Thompson is a nice pickup now that you guys signed Rasha- re-signed Rashawn Holmes. I was worried <laughs> when the Kings first signed – Thompson and no Holmes news was anywhere to be found early on in free agency I was getting a little bit worried and I'm sure a lot of Sacramento was getting a little bit worried but now that I'm looking at this roster one the three guard lineups look really fun and the Kings are bad so were bad last year so they need something to spice things up in their you know rotation in their roster but the defensive depth might is I think it's I think it's clearly better. I don't know. How do you feel? Well, given that the Kings were literally the worst defense in NBA history last season, it would be pretty hard for them to go backwards in terms I'm sorry. of I, can defensive I, can personnel. I be, can I be an asshole and correct you on that? Yes, of course. So the Kings were actually the second worst <laughs> defensive rating in NBA history. They were 0.4 behind the uh, 2018-2019 Cleveland Cavaliers. But your point still stands. <laughs> they were oh, a okay. sto- they... historically bad defense. <laughs> yeah, I think they must have had an uptick towards the end of the season for that <laughs> to happen because they were they were well below the worst defense of all time for much of the year. But yep. no, you're, you're right. They did manage to climb to second worst of all time in the end. So thank you for that <laughs> correction. But the thing with... The thing with the Kings personnel this season, and you mentioned it when talking about Harrison Barnes and Mo Harkless, this team is overloaded at guard and specifically overloaded at primary point guard. I mean, Fox, Halliburton, and Mitchell are primary point guards. And, you mm-hmm. know, before the DeLon Wright, Tristan Thompson swap, which 
I really enjoyed DeLon Wright last season, so I I did too. I'm not. Yeah, it's not like the greatest thing in the world that he's gone, but I mean, with Mitchell coming in, there just weren't going to be any minutes for one or the other of them. So the Kings have a ton of depth at guard. They have quite a few centers, especially if you think of Marvin Bagley as more of a center than a power forward, which I don't because his defense at center is miserable and his defensive power forward is at least occasionally passable but right the kings have basically no wings like it's harrison barnes and it's mo harkless and that's kind of it mm-hmm. unless you're considering lewis king to be someone who's going to get a ton of minutes next season which i don't exactly anticipate so when you have that kind of lack of forward depth in your rotation, it almost requires you to play a lot of three guard lineups just because you don't have enough players that are, you know, under six ten. you know, you're not going to roll out a lineup of four centers, which kind of necessitates a lot of guard play. I think something that will help is that Tyrese Halliburton has put on 10 to 15 pounds of muscle in the off season. So he now weighs <laughs> somewhere between 10 and 15 pounds, which is, you know, a lot better than, where he was at last year. And, you know, this is something that I saw with De'Aaron Fox very early in his career where he was just so, so skinny as a rookie point guard. And he hasn't really lived up to his athletic tools on the defensive end of the floor at any point in his NBA career. But, But he's so much harder to push around than he was as a rookie. And one of the biggest differences between Fox and Halliburton is that Tyrese Halliburton came into the league with a really solid set of defensive instincts, defensive positioning, and he had one of the best steal rates in the country while he was in college. So Halliburton came into the league with a lot more sort of fully formed of a defensive toolkit than De'Aaron Fox More had. stuff to work with. Exactly. And so the fact that he is, you know, going from incredibly skinny to slightly less incredibly skinny you know, just like with Fox, it's going to be very helpful on the defensive end of the floor. Now, with Fox, the main gain from him putting on some weight was that it dramatically improved his ability to get to the free throw line and draw fouls. And that's not quite as much Halliburton's game as it is Fox's, but De'Aaron Fox has always had these ridiculous athletic tools, and it's just the defensive awareness and positioning that he needs to work on. Whereas With Tyrese, he's already so far ahead of where most rookie guards are and certainly most second-year guards are in terms of his understanding of where to be on the floor and his ability to jump passing lanes and create turnovers. And the fact that he's had, you know, one offseason, he didn't really even have training camp last season, obviously, because of the state of the world last year. But, you know, him having a partial off season and a full training camp for the first time combined with the fact that he's, you know, a year older and therefore hopefully is starting to put on more muscle. I think that's going to be huge for this Kings team because when they roll out the three guard lineups that necessitates that, you know, either you're deciding that the opposing small forward is someone you don't need to worry about. And you sort of stick Fox or Davion Mitchell or buddy healed on that guy and worry about it later Tyrese is going to be the tallest of the guards in any of the Kings sort of permutations of three guard lineups. So in theory, that would mean that you would want to stick him on the bigger players and him 
having gained a little bit of muscle over where he was last year is like certainly a few possessions be huge in that left, regard. It's a few possessions less of Tyrese getting bowled over, bullied around. Even though that kind of happened a little bit yesterday, it's preseason and I everybody's going to work out the kinks and stuff. But uh, he still kind of looks a little bit lighter. But again, he's 20. He's 20, going to be 20 uh, or just turned 20. So, I mean, it's going to take time. Uh, is it crazy for me to say that Davion Mitchell might be the best defensive guard on the Kings roster, like, now, like, already? Not only do I not think that's crazy, I think that's just true. I mean, he was, in I think my it's mind, pretty clear, actually. Yeah, like, if he wasn't the best guard defender in the country last year in college basketball, he was pretty close. And, you know, when you hear him talk about defense in interviews and talk about how, you know, I can't always score on a given night, but I can always, you know, put in all the effort defensively and push as hard as I can on the defensive end of the floor. You know, that's the kind of mentality that, and not to bash De'Aaron Fox in any way, because I love De'Aaron Fox, but, you know, he's primarily focused on the offensive end of the floor and he has been for his entire career. And, you know, Tyrese is someone who's, solid on both ends of the court and certainly puts in a lot of effort on both ends of the court. But I mean, Davion is older than Tyrese and he's got a lot more muscle than Tyrese. And, you know, he's just not going to be pushed around as much as Tyrese. And I think that even though the rookies in general just tend to be terrible on the defensive end of the floor, I think Davion is one of the few rookies who has a chance to be at least average on that end. And I think he's going to be a lot better than average. And quite frankly, given what we saw from the Kings defense last season, having one defender who you can solidly rely on as above average is honestly a plus. And the Kings, I think, have three clear plus defenders in Harrison Barnes, Rashawn Holmes, and Davion Mitchell. And I think the course of this season is going to be determined by just how much they can figure out on the defensive end of the floor with the rest of this roster. And part of that falls on De'Aaron. Part of that certainly falls on Marvin Bagley if he's going to get major playing time. But really the Kings best defensive guard is I think pretty clearly Davion Mitchell at this point. And, you know, maybe that'll look really stupid 20 games into the season, but he certainly has a really strong defensive pedigree coming out of college. It's just, it's just the way that he defends. It's just, it's infectious. It's 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 contagious. I mean, I can't wait to cover a few Kings games this year. I'm going to try to go on opening night. I just want to see how the crowd reacts when Davion has that possession where the Kings are on defense and it's 10 seconds left in the shot clock and Davion's just in somebody's grill, whether it be off-ball denial or is just in somebody's jersey um in terms of on ball defense and he's just sliding his feet and dodging screens and just seeing how the golden one center crowd is going to react because it's really it's really fun to watch i forgot that davion even shot three of eight from the field and he went one of four from three but he was a plus 20 in the game yesterday and he was getting after it defensively he ran down like a full court like the Kings let the ball roll into the backcourt. Um, and if they touched it, it was going to be, you know, backcourt um, over and back violation. And Cam Johnson went and pursued the ball and Davion just chased him all the way down and knocked the ball out of bounds. It's just stuff like that. It was like, 
it's preseason and you're putting in this type of effort. And he did that all the way back at Baylor. That's why they gave him the off na- or the off name, the nickname off night that that's his nickname. Um, but he's going to be, he's going to be awesome to watch. I really can't wait to see what he brings during the regular season. I think Monty McNair, I, I think people were a little bit confused when the pick happened but then the more you look at it, and then especially after you watch your Sacramento Kings win the Summer League Championship. Uh, oh, yeah. It, it just two-time Summer two-time League Two-time Summer League champs, baby. <laughs> Somebody print the shirt. No, but uh, after seeing— well, It's not like we have any other shirts to print. <laughs> hey, I mean, fair. You got to celebrate in any way you can. Um, but it just after seeing Davion at Baylor and then in Summer League— it just seems like Monty hit another one out of the park, just getting good NBA players. And it's not necessarily that Davion Mitchell was more ready than the other draft prospects. He's just really good. And honestly, he does. I think he has a lot of offensive upside, especially with the way that he works. And that those, those type of dudes, they work a lot. And I can already see Davion being... Maybe he might not have a consistent, consistent offensive impact this year, but he's already got – he's a good three-point shooter. I don't think the Baylor – I don't know about you. You have definitely watched more college basketball than I have this year, especially this past season. Um, I feel like Davion Mitchell's three-point shot is repeatable. I don't think that – maybe he won't be a 45% three-point shooter like he was at Baylor, but he's going to be a good shooter regardless. So I think he'll have an – uh, impact on the offensive end regardless. Yeah, I don't buy him as a 45% three-point shooter, but I definitely buy him as like a 38 to 40% three-point shooter. And I yeah. definitely think he has shown clear signs of improvement over the course of his college career, you know, from his freshman year at Auburn, where he couldn't even hit 30% of his threes to last year at Baylor. You know, I think his three-point percentage in the NBA is going to be a lot closer to the 45% from last season than the 29% from his freshman year. I think my biggest concern with Davion Mitchell, honestly, is he's going to get called for a lot of fouls. Oh yeah. Because he just is so aggressive on the defensive end of the floor that, you know, I think he's just going to get called for a lot of fouls that might not even be fouls because the refs aren't expecting a rookie to be that aggressive slash, you know, they're not used to his, game yet because he's a rookie and therefore they're probably going to call a lot of ticky tack fouls that maybe he shouldn't necessarily get and or maybe he won't get by his second or third year in the league as someone who watches Matisse Thibel has watched Matisse Thibel his whole career it took the refs a bit to get adjusted to Thibel I it's going to be the same for Mitchell the way he gets up into dudes like the refs are going to be like I feel like some of the calls they're just going to be unfair they're going to be those whoa 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 that's way too physical uh, fouls where it's really not just Davion looks aggressive (laughs) doing it um so yeah he's gonna have a learning curve for sure yeah no that's that's really my biggest concern with him because you know, honestly, he's not going to be expected slash relied upon to generate a lot of offense. And offense was certainly not the problem for this team last season. So, you know, as long as Davion mostly spots up either in the wing or on the corner on the offensive end and then puts 85 to 90% of his effort in on the defensive end of the floor, I think he's going to be a 
real contributor for this team. It's, you know, again, really my biggest concern with his defense is not as much the NBA adjustment in terms of the athleticism, because I think he can handle that. It's more that, you know, he's going to have to be careful. Although the flip side of that is if he's only getting 15 minutes a game, you know, he can afford to get four or five fouls. Oh yeah, of course. Um, One question about the uh, potential starting lineup. So if, Luke Walton decides to go with the starting lineup he used yesterday. It looks like it's going to be De'Aaron Fox, Tyrese Halliburton at the guards, as I mentioned, Harrison Barnes at the three, Marvin Bagley at the four, which I agree with you, that's his best position. I don't think he's a small ball five. And then Rashawn Holmes at the uh, at the uh, center spot, my beloved Rashawn Holmes. I'm glad he's found it forever. Our home. beloved Rashawn Holmes. Yes, our beloved Rashawn Holmes. Um has found a home in Sacramento for the next four years with his new deal. I'm wondering what concerns do you see with this starting lineup in particular? Cause I'm zeroing in on two players in this starting lineup. And I love deer and Fox. You know, this, I was a deer and Fox guy. I thought the Suns should have drafted deer and Fox instead of uh, Josh Jackson. But, um, that did not yeah, that looks good in hindsight, doesn't it? Yeah, it looks good for you guys for sure. <laughs> um, for once, yeah. But I'm looking at De'Aaron Fox first and then Marvin Bagley second. De'Aaron Fox, this is now going to be um, year four. I'm pretty sure it's year four. I might be mixing it up. I'm still waiting for my coffee to kick in for my afternoon nap. Um, De'Aaron Fox is... This will be year five, just yes, by year the way, five. for reference. Year five, thank you. Um, I knew it was year five. Um, it's going to be year five for De'Aaron Fox. He's still, his concern of shooting, um, it's not Ben Simmons level. Just, I just want to get that out of the way right now. No one is at this level. I would never put them <laughs> in the, in that category. Um, but says Jordan, having put him in that category, I'm, he had one outlier season shooting 37% from three and for me, for this starting lineup to be a little bit more functional, I think he needs to finally take the step towards becoming a good three-point shooter because the other three seasons, rookie year, 30, 30%, um, third year, 2019-20, 29.2, last season, 32.2. And you know what it is? I'm there we're gonna have three. We're going to have three different seasons at one point in 12 calendar months. So it's starting to blend together for me. I'm sure other media are having trouble with this, but <laughs> it's it's all blending together. You know how crazy it is we're going to have three different seasons at one point in 12, 12 months. It's really been messing with me. Um, yeah, I saw a video the other day of one year ago today, Jimmy Butler puts up uh, this scoreline in the 2020 finals of like, that was two finals ago. And that was a year ago. <laughs> it's really, it's really wild. So I've really, I've really been like last podcast. <laughs> I thought LeBron was like in his uh, third or f- third year with the Lakers. And Evan was like, no, it's been a, it's been a few seasons. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. It's, all the seasons are blending together, but back to De'Aaron Fox. With him first, I feel like last year he was great attacking the rim. Career highs attacking the rim, getting to the free throw line, like you mentioned. But with this lineup, I feel like he needs to take the next step shooting the three ball and for that to open his game and to open up 
the game for the other people in the starting lineup. Because if you're looking at the Kings lineups last year, De'Aaron Fox, Buddy Heald, Harrison Barnes, Marvin Bagley, and Rashawn Holmes, that was their best lineup net rating-wise, but I feel like Heald covered a lot of... Not the... I guess if you want to call them lack of shooting, you can from that lineup, but Barnes and Heald really had to carry that load. Marvin Bagley, still inconsistent from the three-point line. I feel like De'Aaron Fox has to take that next step as a shooter and to get better in the half court offensively. He's gotten one part of it down, but I feel like he needs to get this part finally down. It's year five. It's time for him to take the next step. What say you about De'Aaron Fox? What are you looking for him this year in terms of the next steps of growth and his offensive development? We know what he needs to do defensively. He needs to get better on that end, but I'm specifically offensively as it pertains to that projected starting lineup. What are you looking for from Fox? Yeah. So for Fox, as you mentioned, you know, he had that one year shooting 37% from three and otherwise has been hovering around the 30% mark. But for me, the biggest indicator for Fox last year was that he was taking a lot more three-pointers. So, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, he was still at 32.2% on the year, which isn't great, but he went from averaging under four three-point attempts per game to five and a half threes per game last season. And, you know, you sort of hear this trope all the time about how, you know, it's more about the defenses having to go out to guard you and cover you when you're beyond the three-point line versus, you know, how many you actually take and make in any given game. But Fox increasing his three-point rate, I think, was a huge start for him last season. And then, you know, the other thing with Fox is that before the All-Star break, he was at 34% from long range, which, you know, isn't great. But if he could get that to like 35, 36%, given how ridiculously fast he is and given his improved free throw rate from last year, I think, you know, 35% range is pretty much fine for him. But after the All-Star break, that dipped below 30%. And I think part of that was just that he took on a lot tougher of a diet of threes after the all-star break before, you know, he got injured and missed the rest of the season. But, you know, with Fox, I think him just taking them is a huge step forward versus sort of where he was in year three. And I think, you know, this year, if he can get to maybe six or seven three pointers a game, you know, even if he's in the low thirties percentage wise, it does force defenses to have to cover him differently if he's taking, you know, five or six a game versus two or three a game. So that was a huge sign last year. You know, he was also taking a lot more threes off the dribble than he had been previously. And, you know, the pull-up three is a huge part of any NBA point guards game these days. And that's something that Fox certainly has shown more of last year as opposed to previous years of his career. So, you know, again, hopefully that three-point percentage can tick up a bit, but I was really encouraged by the fact that he was at least a whole lot more willing to take those shots last year than he had been previously. Yeah, that yeah, that's a fair point. Um, he did he took five and a half threes last year, as you mentioned. He had some games where he had some absolute heaters. The you know he had the Pelicans in the torture rack all season last year oh man and those pelicans kings games were some of the most fun i've had watching basketball in a long time De'Aaron just massacred yeah he he had them in the torture rack pull up threes floaters he had when he gets the whole offensive package working 
it you can really see why you know Kings fans are just excited about you know the point guard of the future um I would just really like to see like you said if he could get up to the 35 36 percent I don't think he's ever going to be a fantastic shooter but we all know the kid works he every season he works on the three-point shot it's only a matter of time before he becomes consistently hovering around 35 36 percent but I think this is the year where he finally needs to um put it together because I personally think this Kings team is a play-in team I'll get into the reasons why later but um there's another key component to the to this uh optimism for me or maybe not a key component but somebody that I'm looking at as sort of a high upside wild card and that is Marvin Bagley and it's weird to say that to describe Marvin Bagley that way because he is you know the lottery pick that was taken over he who shall not be mentioned um and he's been injured and you know whenever he does play it looks kind of rough at times but last year um I mean last year he played or at the start of last he's played 118 career games so far but last season he had passed game 82 and you know obviously kept playing but that's that's how much he's been hurt and has not been available is that he passed his 82nd career game last season um at the beginning of last season and I'm wondering the other key component to this starting lineup, obviously. <clears throat> I'm wondering what are you looking for from Marvin Bagley? Are you looking for him to up his trade value and maybe be a part of a trade? Because that's kind of if I was running the Kings, that's kind of what I would be looking to do. Um, considering that I don't know if I would really give him um, the rookie max or even match a restricted free agency offer, but. Bagley's talented we all know this um but there's a lot of holes in his offensive game but he just needs to play more and I feel like there were some there were some points last year where he showed more flashes than I thought he did his pre his uh first two years I mean the lockout I mean the uh 2019-20 year we could just throw that out the window that was that that season was dead on arrival the minute he um hurt his hand but I'm just wondering what you're looking for from Marvin Bagley this year. What are your hopes with him? What are you hoping the team does with Marvin Bagley in terms of his future? Because um, I think he's, if they're going to roll with this starting lineup, Marvin Bagley needs to, one, be a better shooter. And he needs to do what he does, which is attack people off the dribble against people that are against usually power forwards that are going to be smaller than him. Yeah, so with Marvin, I think it's there's one part that's pretty similar to the De'Aaron Fox discussion, which is last year he took a career-high number of three-point attempts, at least, actually, no, in terms of total and in terms of on a per-game basis, and he hit 34% of them, mm -hmm. which, you know, given that De'Aaron Fox is primarily going to be driving to the rim and given that Marvin Bagley really just can't play center, I mean, at one point last year, he was allowing 75% on shots around the basket. I don't know if he <laughs> finished the season in that kind of territory, but, you know, that's that's just not something that you can have from your viable. primary, yeah, from your primary big man down low, which that alone sort of forces him into the power forward spot. 
The thing with Bagley is that the Bagley, Barnes, Holmes, Fox, Halliburton, or Heald setup, I think works really well. But some of the Kings' best lineups last season were basically three-guard lineups with Harrison, Harrison Barnes, Barnes at the four yep. and Rashawn Holmes at the five. And so, you know, for Marvin Bagley, I mean, obviously the talent is there. The biggest question by far is just health. Can he stay healthy? And, you know, that's going to be whether he is a king in the long term, which I think is very unlikely or not, you know, it's really just going to depend so much on his health because if he stays healthy and plays within a fraction of his talent, then he will contribute positively to the Kings. And furthermore, he will dramatically boost his trade value. So the health is the biggest thing by far for Marvin Bagley, as it has been basically since the day that he entered the NBA. But, you know, with this starting five, because Rashawn Holmes is not a four spacer at all. And because De'Aaron Fox's three point shot comes and goes, Bagley's going to need to at least be able to step out and hit three pointers on occasion. And, that was a pretty promising part of his game last year. And that's something certainly that I hope he will continue this year. The other thing with Bagley is that, you know, effort is sometimes a concern for him on the defensive end of the floor, but really the biggest concern for him on the defensive end of the floor is that he just doesn't know where to be. It just feels like he doesn't know where he's supposed to be on the floor on the defensive end at any given point in time. And yeah. That's just something that, you know, goes back to what you mentioned. He played the 82nd game of his NBA career in his third NBA season, and he is still at 118 games for his three years in the NBA so far. You know, health is the alpha and the omega for Marvin Bagley, and it always was going to be. But the second biggest thing, I think, for him is going to be that three-point percentage. And then... The third thing is that Marvin Bagley at Duke was one of the most insane rebounders that we've seen in college basketball in yes. the last 10 years. And, you know, when you have Rashawn Holmes as your five, you know, he will occasionally put up double doubles, but he's a bit undersized at center. So having someone like Bagley who can help out on the glass is I think going to be huge. And, you know, furthermore, if you're Bagley and, you know, let's just assume based on some of his like tweets and some of the things that his father has said over the years, you know, let's say that you desperately want to get out of Sacramento, the easiest possible way for you to up your trade value and up your perception among other teams is to just relentlessly charge the glass. And that's something that he's shown that he can do. So, yep. you know, if he can knock down 35% of his three pointers and take like three or four of them a game, and then just get to the glass a little bit more often than he has in his first three years in the NBA, you know, certainly I could understand not wanting to crash the glass, crash the glass aggressively if you've had injury issues throughout your career but if you want to boost your trade value as quickly as possible then the best thing for you to do is be a solid three-point shooter and and crash the glass really hard because everybody knows how much of an athlete you are and how how much damage you can do with your offensive game when you have the ball in your hands it's just you know will you contribute in other ways and whether he wants to get a trade or not, you know, again, most of the news out of the Bagley camp has come from his father. And certainly Marvin has seemed like a, you know, really good kid who's been 
put in a terrible situation yeah. based on injuries and based on he who shall not be named. You know, <laughs> if he wants to either boost his trade value or just be a more valuable player to the Sacramento Kings, I think that crashing the glass <clears throat> and putting up three pointers is going to be the best way for him to do it. I also think um, be Tyrese Halliburton being in the starting lineup, you still retain, you might not get the movement shooting that Buddy Heal provides, but you still get a really good three-point shooter, You st- a deep range three-point shooter. But Halliburton's passing, I think he's the best passer on this team. Even uh, me personally, I think he's better than Fox at passing. I would agree. I would agree. Yeah, I think he's the best passer on this team. And I think, but and Fox is a good passer in his in his own right. And my point is, having two guards in the lineup who can pass, I think that's going to help out Bagley a lot, especially two guards who can dribble, run, pick, and roll, and get to the hoop. I think that's just going to give Bagley so many opportunities to attack a compromised defense. That I, in a way that, you know, maybe Buddy Heald didn't provide as much, even though he attracted his own defensive attention and gravity because he could move around um hit threes off of screens handoffs or whatever um I just think Halliburton being in the starting line I think that's actually a smart move by Luke Walton I and I know that's not going to be often said in Sacramento land this I imagine the uh, that much this season (laughs) but just putting two guards in there who know what they're doing when it with the ball in their hands who know how to pass I think that's really going to benefit Bagley as well but yeah, I agree with you. Bagley was such a good defend or a good rebounder at Duke, and that was with Wendell Carter Jr. in there, um, in the starting lineup with him. And I hope he gets back to that because I do think he's. Ta- I was higher on Bagley than most. I thought he had. I mean, no, I definitely don't think the Kings should have drafted him over he who shall not be named. But I thought Bagley was. I thought he had the ceiling of at least a multi-time all-star, whatever that means. Um, whether he's a, whether that means he's a bona fide tier one, tier two, or tier three franchise player, I don't know. But he just needs to stay healthy. That's the, that's the main thing with him. Um, speaking of Luke Walton, um, year three. Can we not actually? Speak of Luke Walton. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We have to. Unfortunately, (laughs) it's it's part of the part of the deal here with the Kings uh, season preview. We have to talk about the head coach, the one who replaced Dave Yeager after the best season in Sacramento's history to that point in 14 years. Um, Yeager gets let go. Luke Walton enters the 2019-20 season. First year head coach. Not great. Yeah, some injuries, but not great. Second year this past season, not great. <laughs> uh, nope. Two separate nine-game losing streaks. And weirdly enough, those losing streaks came after really good stretches of basketball. I think both times the Kings won at, had won like seven out of eight, beating some really good teams. The Kings have had some weirdly good victories in the Luke Walton era, but I still don't think he's been a good coach and the main the main sticking point with me is he's been living off one not only the um the 73 win warriors where he coached a lot of those games early on because of steve kerr's back back issues but he's also he's been to me he's been coasting off of that off of that 2018 19 or that excuse me 
the 2017-18 uh, season, where it was with the young Lakers, with Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, Randall, all those guys. And the Lakers were a top-half defense, and everyone was like, oh, you, you normally can't get young kids to play defense like that. Luke Walton, man, uh, he's he's got something cooking there. And it's been bad since he's been here. And the other thing that I think is malpractice is that there is no way on God's green earth with all these guards and De'Aaron Fox, the fastest point guard in the NBA, there is no way the Kings should be anywhere outside of the top five in terms of pace. I think they were the top, they were either 20th or 21st in his first year. They were top seven last year. And that was after a slow, another slow start to the season in terms of pace rankings. But those are the two main things for me with Luke Walton. Yeah, he might not be the most creative mind offensively, but I'm not concerned about the offense. The Kings were tied for 10th in offensive rating per cleaning the glass. They have a lot of good players who have offensive skills. But those are the two things that just stick out like a pair of sore thumbs. And for me, this has got to be, if I'm Monty McNair, and I haven't hired my own coach yet, it's a coach from the previous regime, I'm just wondering... This has to be Luke Walton's last year. If the Kings don't make the play in this year, I can't see Luke Walton coming back. And this is not me reporting or anything like that. I am not plugged into the Kings organization at all. I have only covered a handful of Kings games because I have a full-time job and I can only really go to games on weekends and day and days where I don't have work. But I'm just reading. I'm just, if I'm Monty McNair, for me, this has to be a hot seat year for Luke Walton if they don't play up to their potential or at least show some improvement defensively or pace-wise. Yeah, I mean, I thought that last year was the prove-it year for Luke Walton, and I was genuinely stunned when the news came out that the Kings were retaining him for another year. If they don't make the play-in this season, I think that's curtains for Luke Walton. I mean, honestly, more to the point, if they start off the season really slow, I could see him going out midway through the year, even though that doesn't really seem like it's, you know, what's going to happen based on last season, because there were certainly times throughout last season during either of those nine game losing streaks where it seemed like Walton might be on the hot seat and might not make it to the end of the year. But, you know, really the thing with me is the defense was atrocious. And if I have to hear Luke Walton say, I don't know, I'm going to look at the tape one more time. I think I might (laughs) genuinely go insane. But the defense is one thing. The pace is what's just unacceptable to me. I mean, they managed to climb into the top 10 towards the end of last season, but that was towards the end of last season. And, you know, De'Aaron Fox is the fastest player in the league, and Tyrese isn't the same kind of speedster, but he plays a really fast, up-tempo game. You know, he kicks the ball ahead. He runs out in transition, he gets steals in passing lanes he and runs to the you know starts transition, transition that way. All that. Yeah. And, you know, Buddy Heald is an excellent transition three-point shooter. And I think that, you know, when talking about Marvin Bagley's value as a three-point shooter earlier, I think him as a trail three-point shooter can also be a huge plus to this team. There's just no excuse for the Kings not being in the top five of pace other than the fact that they don't have a good coach. And, you know, that's, that's, I mean, that's really what it boils down to is 
you know, yes, the defense was terrible and there were certainly ways in which the defense could have been better, but with the defensive personnel that the Kings had last season, I don't think they were ever going to climb out of the bottom five on the defensive end. Mm. The fact that it took till the end of the year for them to get into the top 10 of pace is it's just, it's a stupid way to manage this basketball team. And, you know, I don't want to pretend that I know more than NBA coaches, but that's just something that is so blindingly obvious that I don't understand why, you know, the Kings weren't, competing for the fastest pace in the league, honestly. And, you know, they picked up someone in Davion Mitchell, who's also incredibly fast and also incredibly good in transition. And hopefully Marvin Bagley will be healthy and running in transition is one of his best, if not his best That's offensive his, yeah. attribute. You know, it, it just, it makes absolutely no sense to me. And the fact that Dave Yeager, who, you know, came up as the coach of the slow as grit and grind yes the grit and grind grizzlies and the thing about dave yeager is that he saw you know in his last season with the Kings before they let him go which i might never recover from you know he saw what he had on his team and he adjusted his coaching plan to fit the players that he had oh a novel concept i know right it's amazing that you can actually you know, change your strategy based on the players that you have on your team, as opposed to just trying to apply the same exact strategy to every single team, no matter the players on the team. You know, if grit and grind Grizzlies Dave Yeager can adjust and turn his team into a top five in pace team, there's no reason that Luke Walton shouldn't be able to do that. There just isn't. And, you know, that I am almost more worried about than the defense because I kind of accept that this team just based on the personnel that they have, unless De'Aaron Fox makes a pretty much unprecedented leap on the defensive end of the floor, this team is going to be bottom 10, maybe even bottom five on the defensive end again. But guess what? If you're going to be giving up a lot of points anyway, you might as well try and run out in transition more where that's where your team is at its best. And if you give up looks on the other end, you're kind of doing that anyway. So I mean, yeah, here, the here is the, the one that really gets to me. Here were the teams that were ahead of the the Kings finished. I'm looking at NBA.com. There's obviously some websites who calculate pace a little bit differently, but most of them had the Kings hovering around the top 10. Here are some of the teams that finished ahead of the Kings in terms of pace. The stealth tanking Oklahoma City Thunder. The Houston Rockets. Minnesota. Indiana. Washington finished first. It's possible. Like, I mean, and and I know that sounds simple the to Kings, say. I'm sorry, but the Kings should never be playing slower than the Indiana Pacers. Yep, that's yep, that's atrocious. It, it yep the the Pacers were fourth in pace. And look, it's simple for me to. It's easy for me to say like, this is easy. Like, it's not hard. The Kings should be higher up. But it really isn't that hard. And I think if the Kings improve like slightly defensively i'm not expecting them to be a top half defense i don't even know if they can get out of the bottom third of the league defensively this year but i think they i don't can, think they can honestly. i think i think the personnel is a bit better and i think they could get a few more stops and when you get those stops run don't walk the ball there were some times last year where they would walk the ball up after they actually got a stop 
And instead of running, they would just walk it up and try to run a half court set. And I'm like, why? Like, why are we, why are you trying to do this? And it's just, like you said, it's, it's unacceptable that the Kings are that far down in the pace rankings. And a lot of these teams are tanking, by the way. One in the Pacers, they, they had a coaching mutiny in the locker room. Like there's just in the Washington Wizards, like obviously that's, a lot because of Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal, but the Wizards were terrible for the first two months of the season, and they still kept a high pace. Like, there's just no way that Sacramento should be finishing at the bottom ten of the or the bottom part of the top ten in pace. That's just that that's wild to me. Um, well, and the year before, they were in the bottom ten. In yeah, pace. And yeah. And the, that's the other that, that was an improvement <laughs> from the year before that. Uh, defensively we've touched on it a little bit um i i mean this team isn't i might be a little bit higher on the defensive personnel than you are it sounds like i think tristan thompson will help a little bit i don't think alex lynn should be uh seeing that much time on the court but he probably will for some matchups you know he's you know he can catch the ball around the rim and score that's about it but i mean I think their personnel is a little bit better. I think adding Davion Mitchell is going to help a lot. I think Tyrese Halliburton is a really intuitive and smart off-ball defender and everywhere else besides, obviously, the, the strength that we mentioned earlier. It, I just can't fathom. I mean, there has to be – there's nowhere to go but up, right? I mean, I guess I'm thinking of it that way. Like, if they were the second-worst defensive rating – in NBA history, second highest defense, whatever you want to use. Um, if they were the second worst in NBA history, for me, there's like nowhere to go but up. And so I just see, <laughs> weirdly enough, I see internal improvement towards that route. Uh, how do you feel overall when you look at the roster up and down? How do you feel? Do you feel any better about the defensive personnel or the personnel defensive-wise this year compared to last year. I know it's early, but I'm looking at the roster, and it's kind of like they kind of improved a little bit. I have to see it, but I'm optimistic. But how do you? what are you thinking about the defense? Um, is it going to be historically bad again? How do you feel about it? So first of all, saying there's nowhere to go but up about the Sacramento Kings is an incredibly dangerous sentence to put together. Yeah, so, I know. That's been used for 15 years. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's not wrong at all. I mean, I think that the defensive personnel is pretty clearly better this year, but, you know, the the important phrase there is compared to what, right? And it's like yeah. compared to a defense that barely scraped away from being the worst defense of all time, mostly thanks to two late games against the aggressively, aggressively tanking Oklahoma city thunder that helped out their defensive rating. But, you know, with the personnel this year, I mean, Tyrese is a year older, which is hugely helpful trading Davion Mitchell minutes for some combination of minutes that were played by Buddy Heald and Corey Terrence Davis last year and Corey Joseph. Uh, yeah, I'm very glad that Corey Joseph is no longer on this team. <laughs> I will say that much. I knew that was going to no be No offense a to Corey. Point. I'm sure he's a wonderful human being. Oh, he's an awesome dude. Yeah, I I got very fed up of watching Corey Joseph mid-range pull-ups. I will 
readily admit that. But I mean, Tyrese being a year older, Davion Mitchell being on this team, Tristan Thompson, now I think he will at least help on the defensive end of the floor. And, you know, if two-way contract player Nimi Ishkeda gets any minutes for the Sacramento Kings this year, I think that will be a huge boost to their defense. I mean, I talked about how I'm pretty sure that Davion Mitchell is the best guard defender on this team. By the end of this season, Nimi Ishkeda might have an argument for the best defensive big man on this team. I mean, Mm -hmm. he was defensive player of the year twice in his three years at Utah State. He's an absolute shot-blocking menace around the rim. And especially given Marvin Bagley's incredible deficiencies as a rim protector and Rashawn Holmes certainly puts in the effort and certainly has gotten much, much better on the defensive end of the floor, but you know, he's still a little bit undersized for a big man, which Kata is certainly not. It'll be interesting to see if Kata actually gets any time with the Kings this year, but I think he could certainly help out their defense if he does. And then, you know, the other thing about this team, honestly, is it seems pretty clear that they're going to be at least looking to trade players, you know, if not at the trade deadline, maybe even earlier in the year. I mean, Buddy Heald certainly is a huge boost to this team's offense, but he is a massive drag on this team's defense. And, you know, yeah, for all the efforts he had, I thought he was better last year, but it was still bad, if that makes any sense. (laughs) No, it makes total sense. I mean, you know, he, he tried a lot harder and his positioning was better, but he just isn't that great defensively and he's never really had the tools to be a great defender anyway. Yeah. So, you know, expecting much from him on the defensive end of the floor is kind of just a lost cause slash way to upset yourself. But I think that ultimately, you know, Davion Mitchell getting a bigger share of the minutes is certainly going to help the defense. I think that down the stretch of last season, Mo Harkless was a really solid contributor on the defensive end of the end on the defensive end of the floor. And yep. he was, he was definitely a positive surprise for me for the Kings after the trade deadline. And, you know, their defense got a little bit better over the course of last season from record settingly bad to just barely not record settingly bad. And I think that the personnel this year is better. I think that one year more for Tyrese Halberton is going to be big. And then really the defensive question that I think is biggest at this point is, what do we see from De'Aaron Fox? Because he has all the athletic tools to be one of the best defenders in the league. And he's Especially just at the been point a of minus attack. on that end of the floor. Exactly. Yeah. And he's just been a minus on that end of the floor. And if he can go from being a minus on that end of the floor to, you know, maybe it's too much to hope for, for him to be an above average defender, but even just him getting to average, you know, I would say that, Harrison Barnes is solidly an above average defender. I would say that Rashawn Holmes is right about average as a center defender. And the team actually had a positive net rating with Rashawn Holmes on the floor last season, which given how the season ended up is an absolutely ridiculous statistic. Mm. And, you know, I think that Tyrese, I would say overall, he was a little bit below average as a defender last year, just because he got pushed around a lot, but he knew where to be. And, you know, one more season in the NBA is, I think, going to lead to him being better on the defensive end. So, you know, if that's how you're looking at it, then 
ultimately the biggest defensive minuses in the Kings starting lineup as currently aligned are Marvin Bagley and De'Aaron Fox. And I think Bagley will do less damage on the defensive end as a primary power forward rather than, you know, sort of switching between power forward and center. And I think that if De'Aaron puts in a little more effort on the defensive end of the floor, he clearly has the tools to be an average defender. So, you know, you go from a lineup that had a ton of holes on the defensive end to a lineup where you can say, you know what, Holmes, Halliburton, and Barnes, I think between the three of them, you can expect pretty close to average defense. And that's not bad given where this team was last year. So yeah, I still think that this is going to be a bottom 10 defense, but Mm you know, being 22nd as opposed to 30th by a long shot is already a a huge improvement. (laughs) Um, You mentioned Mo Harkless. I want to give a quick shout out to Nemanja Bialica, who, oh man, who I really thought blossomed in Sacramento. He was injured last year and the writing was kind of on the wall that he was going to get traded, but he was one of those players who I was hoping would escape the clutches of Tom Thibodeau when he was in Minnesota with the Timberwolves would get inconsistent playing time, but it was a guy who clearly had skills. He could shoot, he could pass and you know, he could play multiple positions. And I really thought he was a one. He was instrumental in that Kings 2018, 19 season where the Kings was a 38 or 39 games. Either way it was, Either way, it was 39, 39, 43. Yep, 39. It was the most wins that the Kings had in over a decade. And he was just a, he was just a solid player for them. Um, and I still I think he's going to be a huge contributor to the Warriors. But I but I really want I wanted to shout out Nemanja because he's one of those players where I was like, if he could just be on a team where he, they could just let him do his thing a little bit. And he, and he, he was, uh, he did do his thing in Sacramento. You mentioned, um, I guess we should talk about, I want, I, we talked about Halliburton here and there, but, uh, has your ceiling or your opinion of Halliburton, how has, how has your opinion of his ceiling changed when you watched him in college? You do the, um, you do the deep dives podcast on hashtag basketball. You co-host it with, a. Tyler Metcalf and I'm sure you guys have had all kinds of conversations off air about prospects and stuff how has your how has your opinion of Tyrese Halliburton ceiling changed from college to his rookie year and what do you see for him now over these next uh two to three years so I will admit just for starters that I was biased coming in because I thought he was a top five prospect in that class and he fell to the Kings at 12th So I was, you know, already huge on him before he ever put on a Sacramento Kings uniform. Well, not to cut you off. He's already in the Bill Simmons vortex of, oh, this team should have traded for this guy. And he's going to mention that 50,000 times. So Tyrese has got that going for him. (laughs) Yeah, Tyrese to the Phoenix Suns at 10th overall. I don't think we're going to hear the end of that until about 20 years after Tyrese retires. (laughs) Nope. But, you know, the thing, the thing with Tyrese though, is that, you know, the reason that I had him as a top five level prospect in that draft is I thought that he was someone who was going to do all the little things incredibly well, you know, his career at Iowa state, he did basically anything you could ask for, except really being super aggressive on the offensive end of the floor. But he was 
one of the best steals guys in college basketball. He was incredibly accurate with his three-point shot, even if it looked a little bit funky and, you know, gave some people concerns about whether or not he'd be able to shoot at the next level. I wasn't concerned about his shooting at the next level as much as I was concerned about his shooting off the dribble at the next level. And that's kind of come came and gone, but yeah. he has shown that he can take that shot off the dribble and, you know, do well with it. But heading into last season, I kind of thought that the ceiling for Halliburton was going to be like fourth starter on a championship team slash clear starting caliber point guard who contributes in a ton of ways and can be played off the ball or on the ball and just someone who contributes to your team in a whole lot of different ways. But I didn't think that there was really much of a chance of him becoming an all-star player at all. After last season, I think that in the long term he might have an all-star level ceiling, which I did not think at all heading into his rookie year. I thought he was someone who had a really high floor, but also a pretty clearly defined ceiling. And I think that I have pushed up his ceiling in my mind much higher than it was heading into last season, just after what he showed in terms of how much he contributes running the offense, you know, making plays, as either a primary guy or as a secondary guy, you know, hitting 41% of his three pointers. And even that was sort of lower than it was, you know, he cooled down towards the end of last season and he still ended up shooting 41% from three point range, man. And, you know, the other thing about Tyrese, which isn't something that shows up on the stat sheet, but it is just so much fun to watch him play basketball. He's the happiest guy on the court pretty much at all times. Yeah. You know, he'll make the kinds of reads on both ends of the floor. I don't think I will ever forget one possession. I think it was like either the first game he started or like one of the early games where he was getting serious minutes off the bench and <laughs> He was literally just shoving guys into the right positions on the defensive end of the floor. And it's like, this dude is a rookie. He shouldn't have any idea where he's supposed to be, much less where everyone else is supposed to be. But yep. man, he just saw the floor in such a special way. And, you know, that was something that he showed in college, but I don't think he showed it anywhere near to the degree that he showed during his rookie season. And I'm excited for where his ceiling could be. You know, there are still certainly some concerns for him, but, you know, if he puts on a little bit more weight and gets a little bit more comfortable with taking threes off the dribble, and even if he doesn't, honestly, his ceiling is a whole lot higher than I thought it was a year ago. And maybe my, well, obviously, I, I'm, I don't know everything about basketball or anything like that, but for me, when it comes to, like, the jump shot, if it goes in pretty at a pretty consistent rate, then that's a good shot. Like I wasn't really worried. I was worried about the movement shooting from the little that I saw of him in college. Um, the movement shooting, I was wondering how he was going to be able to get that type of shot off and his, uh, <clears throat> and his off the dribble shooting. But like you said, those problems kind of my concerns are they're gone. Now I think he can, I I think he it's going to be like um you know Andre Iguodala made a few all-star teams, right? Um I think Tyrese Halliburton can definitely do that. I think he's going to be a high-level player on a championship team. And again, another hit by Monty McNair granted that Halliburton fell to you guys at at 
at that spot. But still, you have to make the pick. And the fact that he fell there was kind of ridiculous, especially in hindsight. Um, but you guys, I'm man, you guys got a you guys got a good another good one. And I think uh, Mitchell's going to be another good one as well. And also, he might not be the fastest, but he's so crafty and he just knows what to there's just something to be said about players who know what to do when they have the ball oh, in yeah. their hands and his mind is next level um the possession for me that will always stick out and yeah it's probably been viral on twitter a thousand times was that steal in the corner that he got i think i mentioned it to you before <laughs> but that steal he got in the corner against the new york knicks where he basically he ed reeded <laughs> the the pass and faked one way and then just drew, went right back to the corner and stole the ball that that's where I was like okay this dude is like next level basketball smarts it was really impressive and yeah oh sorry go ahead I mean oh no I was just gonna say he's manipulating offenses as a rookie yeah on the defensive end you know he's he's like putting doubt and fear into people's minds on the defensive end as a rookie. And, you know, the possession that I will remember was, you know, I mentioned it earlier, but him shoving buddy healed into position on the defensive end of the floor. Like, of course it was the fact that, well, of course it was buddy, but the fact that he knows exactly where he's supposed to be. And furthermore, where everyone else is supposed to be, you know, a lot of rookie guards don't even know where they're supposed to be much less everyone else. And the fact that Halliburton has that kind of vision and, you know, understanding of the game already at this point in his career. I mean, there are a lot of plays where, you know, if he didn't weigh like four pounds, you'd think he was a 10 year NBA veteran. And, (laughs) you know, I love the Iguodala comp that you mentioned because with both of them, I think the best parts of their games are similar, their abilities to fill every gap, right? You know, if you have Iguodala on the floor, okay, you know, we know who we're putting on their best offensive player and we know who's going to be the guy who's, you know, doing secondary playmaking or tertiary playmaking. You know, we know that when he gets the ball in his hands, he's going to make a good decision with it. Yep. You know, it's like, that allows you so many other opportunities to sort of slot guys in around that. Because if you have a six, six guy who came up in the game as a primary point guard, but you know, he's six, six. And in theory, you know, once he's grown into his body a little bit more, he'll basically be able to defend one through three and maybe even one through four pretty effectively. He's shown that he can clearly play incredibly well off of De'Aaron Fox. He's also shown that he can run the offense as a lead guy at times. You know, having that kind of player on your team makes it so much easier to fill in all the other gaps because it's like, okay, you know, what kind of players do we need on the floor, right? We need a primary playmaker and a secondary playmaker. We need three guys, preferably four guys who can shoot from three-point range. We need, you know, two guys that can defend guards and, two guys that can defend forwards and one guy in the middle, you know, Tyrese Halliburton by himself checks off so many of those boxes that it allows you to, and, you know, worry about other stuff with roster construction. Yeah, exactly. You can be a lot more creative with your roster construction and with the lineups that you put out on the floor when you have someone like Iguodala or like Halliburton who can connect in so many different ways, you know, connect plays and, run the show or take a step back and be a spot up guy. And, you know, if you had a more creative coach than Luke Walton, you could do a whole heck of a lot with that lineup on both <laughs> ends of the floor. Um, a few more things before I let you go or a few more things. And then we'll talk about play and odds, but uh, 
I wanted to ask you personally, as somebody who uh, might not been the biggest fan of the trade when this happened, how does it feel being converted at the church of Harrison Barnes? I think that I have never been more wrong about a trade than I was about the Harrison Barnes trade. <laughs> I aggressively spoke against it repeatedly the moment it happened. And the Kings went either one in five or one in six in the first few games after the Barnes trade. And you and had that confirmation like, bias ready. You exactly. Like, I was like, oh, <laughs> I, I hate the fact that I've been vindicated on how terrible this trade was. But, oh, boy, I've been vindicated on how terrible this trade was. And... <laughs> You know, that it didn't turn out that way. And I am so, so happy to be wrong about that. And Harrison Barnes was probably my third favorite player to watch on the Kings last season, which I never, ever expected to yeah. say going into the trade. And the extension that the Kings signed him to looked aggressively terrible at the time. And my biggest worry about the trade in the first place was I was worried that the Kings were going to give him way too much money in an offseason extension. And Instead, he was such a solid, steady presence for this team on both ends of the floor. He cut a lot of the terrible post-up mid-range fadeaways out of his game and, you know, really just was someone who would either spot up or, you know, try and get to the rim. And I think last season was his best of his NBA career and oh yeah I am now I fully sold on Harrison Barnes and I never expected to <laughs> say that you know any point within the first few weeks or even a few months of that trade but yeah he had a really impressive year last year and he I think will be a huge part of the team again this year and I went from thinking that it was a huge mistake to trade for Harrison Barnes to thinking thank god we have Harrison Barnes yeah now you're thinking don't trade Harrison Barnes please yeah exactly <laughs> please let him let him stick around let him you know anchor this locker room which you know god knows our coach is definitely not going to anchor our locker room right so you know having <laughs> having Barnes is going to be a huge plus on that front uh, you mentioned you know Tyrese Halliburton's con uh, ability to be the connector that's what I see in Barnes too because we brought up the defense earlier Barnes might not be the best defender on the Kings, but I think he's the most important and the most versatile because uh, he can guard one through four. He's banging with the bodies down low. Like he does such yeoman's work for this Kings for he did. He did so much yeoman's work for this Kings team last year is probably going to be the same again because they're going to be going with three guard lineups a lot. And that's not going to work. If one of Harrison Barnes, mainly Harrison Barnes, but also Maurice Harkless, if they go down, I think that small that small lineup, the smaller lineups are that's going to be less tenable in my opinion because you're going to need that versatile forward who can switch one through four, and he's solid at he's really solid at doing that. And to me, that's the connector, or that's Harrison Barnes like connecting ability is it gives the Kings much more lineup versatility and not only lineup versatility but lineup versatility that won't murder you on the defensive end. Well, they did get murdered on the defensive end a lot last year, but if Harrison Barnes wasn't there, they definitely would have had the worst <laughs> defensive rating in league history by a long shot, I think. Because if Harrison Barnes wasn't there, their defensive rating would have been above 120. I believe that fully <laughs> and completely. Yeah. Um he's such he's he he has become such a solid player. I have a 
I have a funny Harrison Barnes story when uh when uh it was one of the few it was one of the games I went to in the 2019-20 season, you know, before it went back when we were allowed to go outside. Um and uh it was a home it was a home game obviously and he was working on you know, his shooting with the training staff and all that stuff pregame. And he was working on, he was, you know, it was kind of like a, I assumed it was a free flow offensive kind of workout. It wasn't like set, like, you know, take this many shots in this spot, whatever. Um, So Harrison Barnes took a post up and he tried to do this Kobe fadeaway and he missed it. The the trainer was talking trash to Harrison Barnes the whole time. They were kind of doing like a little one-on-one thing. And Harrison Barnes took a, you know, two pound dribbles, backed him down, turned around and faded, faded away and missed it. And the trainer was just like, that's a grown man shot. You're not ready for that. And Harrison Barnes just started dying. He's like, are you serious? And I was just sitting there. I was like, oh, my God, that that's pretty funny. So maybe that's what deterred him from taking all those, uh, you know, terrible, terrible fadeaways. Um, but. I agree with you. He had the best season of his career last year. And, um, you know, he was by far shot the best two-point percentage-wise, effective field goal percentage, all that stuff. He's going to be really important. If he misses time or Mo Harkless misses time, there is not much else beyond the beyond uh, those wings that could fill in that 3-4 hybrid. So, uh, yeah, shout-out Harrison Barnes for uh, converting, converting Nick over here. <laughs> um, oh, absolutely. So now that now that we have uh, kind of went over all the players, the coach, the style of play, what we would like to see from the team, it's time to talk playoffs, specifically play in. It's preseason. Everybody's happy. Carmichael Davis once again predicting that the Kings will go into the playoffs. Um, everybody's happy about their team. What do you see for this team? What do you want? What is the optimal result? Do you see them as a play-in team? Because I do, but I want to know how. I want to. I want to ask you first, the fan, who knows this team a lot more better, a lot better than a lot of people. What do you see for this team going forward? And if they are a play-in team, we'll go over the teams that are competing for the play-in. But are they a play-in team? What do? You, what's the potential of this roster? I think that this is a team that will clearly be a play-in contender. I don't think they have much of a shot at all of being one of the top six seeds in the Western Conference. I don't think they would be a top six team, honestly, in the Eastern Conference if they were there. But I think that competing for a play-in slot, especially since you know up front there are two teams in the Houston Rockets and the Oklahoma city thunder that will be desperately trying to avoid the playoffs. And, you know, just those two right there are clearly, I think going to be below the Kings at the end of the year. I think that the Timberwolves and the Pelicans could conceivably be better than the Kings, but I would put the odds at more than half that the Kings end up better than both of those teams. And you know, at that point, that, you know, there are four teams behind you. That puts you in the 11th seed, right? So there's only one of the other 10 teams in the Western Conference that you have to climb above. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, there's always one team every year that has serious injury concerns and drops way lower than people think they will. 
you know, just as an example, I think that if Portland has some bad injury luck towards the beginning of the year, they might blow it up before the trade deadline, right? And, you know, that blowing it up before the trade deadline means that that's a team that the Kings can fall below. I also, for the first time in his coaching tenure with the Sacramento Kings, am confident that Luke Walton is at least the 29th best coach in the <laughs> NBA because the Dallas Mavericks have hired Jason Kidd, yep. which, you know, that's another slot that the Kings could potentially take over in the playoff bonanza. So I would be surprised if the Kings end up in the top six. I would be surprised, honestly, if they're seventh or eighth. But I think I that this is too. a team that has a clear chance at being one of the nine or 10 teams in the play-in. And, you know, once you get to the play-in, I mean, who knows? Some Something magical could happen, and maybe the Kings could find a backdoor route into the postseason for the first time in 15 years. Jason Kidd is, has already been talking about accountability and the buzzwords that we all saw when he was with the Milwaukee Bucks. Just, uh, just FYI, if Luka Doncic wasn't so good, I would be more concerned but I am still concerned <laughs> that Jason Kidd is the uh, head coach or is in any coaching capacity in the NBA for that matter. Um, yes, agreed. You mentioned the Blazers. Uh, I really thought their offseason was terrible until they traded for Larry Nance, but Larry Nance has been injury prone the last two seasons. And he's a good defender and a good passer, but what good is that if he can't make it to 40 or 45 games this year and so it could you're right it could easily fall apart but I'm going with the I'm airing on the side of Willard and Luca are really good so I have them at seven and eight my top six is pretty set I imagine yours is the same as mine so we won't go into that but I have I tiered the I tiered the Western Conference on my other podcast a few weeks ago and in tier four, which is the play-in, I have the Kings square number one, just off rip. I have them number one there. So that would put them as the ninth team. And then in this tier, I'd have the Pelicans and the Grizzlies, who I I don't like what the Grizzlies did this offseason. I'm actually lower on the Grizzlies than a lot of people are. I don't know how you feel about them. The Timberwolves, I am such a huge Carl Anthony Towns believer. I did a video on Carl Anthony Towns and the stupid empty calorie stats bullshit that's been slapped onto him um, in terms of labels. But I have to see it first. Um, just I just have to see it first. I have to see them put it together. I have to see uh, Chris Finch is the real deal, I think, as a coach. And out of all the playing teams, I think the Timberwolves do have the best player. But... I think top bottom overall, I think the Kings have the most solid roster just of good players. The Pelicans, apparently Zion had a secret foot surgery that David Griffin failed to let the public know about. I also, Yeah, that's not concerning at all. That's not concerning at all for a dude that primarily attacks the basket and is like 270 pounds at 6'6". Um DeRozan leaving the Spurs, that's going to hurt them a lot. They're just going to be rolling with the young guys. I think they're clearly a play. They're a team that's in tier five, which is what I labeled play in game hunting. Um, the Thunder, I think they're in this tier as well, but only because I think Shea Gilgis Alexander was so good last year. Um, but, and then the Rockets, of course, they're clearly lottery hunting. But I think if you look up and down, this is why I say this has to be, for me, this would be 
a make or break season for Luke Walton because I see a team whose roster overall top down, maybe not top end talent is pretty clearly better than these teams. And you can talk to me, you could talk me into the Timberwolves, but again, I have to see it. Um, I am a huge Carl Anthony Towns believer, but that's and Anthony Edwards as well. But what I have to see with the other, with the uh, the rest of the roster, and I should mention uh, McDaniel's too. I'm I I like him a lot. Um, but for me, like if the Kings don't make the play in, abject failure would be too strong for a team that isn't going to win the championship or maybe not even get past the first round. But playing's gotta be it's that's gotta be the clear goal. Like that's gotta be within reach. Yeah. I mean, if you just assume that Houston and OKC are gonna be the two bottom teams in the Western Conference, and I think that's pretty fair to assume. And, you know, I think that the Timberwolves and the Pelicans, again, I think they could both be better than the Kings, but I would put the odds at you know, like 60, 40, that the Kings are better than both of those teams. So at that point to make it into the play in, you just have to beat out one of Memphis or San Antonio. And I think that the Grizzlies were the clear losers of that three team deal, you know, which ended up with them sending out Jonas Valanciunas and getting Steven Adams in his place. I mean, yeah, honestly, if, if not their best player, certainly almost indisputably their second best player, you know, like, I don't know. I think that the Kings have better than even odds of at least being the 10th seed because, you know, again, you just have to, assuming that the Timberwolves and the Pelicans end up below the Kings, they just have to be one of Memphis or San Antonio or, you know, just there's always one team that has bad injury luck. You know, I just mentioned the trailblazers because I think that their team that relies so heavily on their top two guys, that if anything happens to either of them, then their season could go up in flames. But, you know, again, like there just needs to be one of those teams. And then the Kings have a really solid shot of being a play in team. And honestly, in terms of, pure talent you know i think that the kings have a pretty clear argument as a team that is if not better than both memphis and san antonio then at least even with them and if that's all it takes to make it into the play and i think that's a very reasonable goal for them to have all right so i have to ask this because your team it's weird how much the Sacramento Kings have been intrinsically tied to my team, the Philadelphia 76ers. But here we are again, after many years of podcasting together, here are our teams once again, intrinsically linked to each other. The Kings have been one of the teams that have been linked to Ben Simmons. I really didn't see you tweet too much about Ben Simmons. I obviously, I live in Sacramento. I follow a lot of Sacramento uh, people in Sacramento. And it it seemed to be really split. Like, yeah, we should trade for Ben Simmons if we want to get to the playoffs. We we should get to the playoffs first before we complain about Ben Simmons' playoff performances, right? Um, yes. Or, you know, I like the young guys. I want to see them develop. Which is which is as a fan, 
I understand. Like you like you like seeing these guys grow. You hope they turn out well. Every play, every young player is untouchable, and all that. I'm just wondering where have you been on this whole. And I've said it before, but this saga, this saga is longer than the Frieza saga in Dragon Ball Z. Like it's really, <laughs> it's really just gotten, it's just like 20 minutes of nothing in the episode, the next episode, then 20 minutes of nothing before action happens. And which I love about Dragon Ball Z, by the way, <laughs> that's what makes it endearing. But I'm wondering where you're at with the whole Ben Simmons thing, especially with the packages that were floated around there. And especially with, Daryl Morey's asking price. If the Kings are starting to struggle out of the gate, if you see the play and slipping away, would you like the Kings to make a Ben Simmons trade? Would you be willing to give up? Well, I think I already know the answer to this one, but is a De'Aaron Fox (laughs) a deal breaker for you? Um, What is the limit? What is the threshold for you in terms of young players you would be willing to give up? for a Ben Simmons if you want Ben Simmons in the purple jersey at all? So I would say that overall, I definitely lean more in favor of having Ben Simmons than not having Ben Simmons. I mean, he is such an incredible presence on the defensive end, and that was obviously a concern for this team last year. And, you know, I think think the Wolves should trade for him too. Yeah, no, it's a very reasonable idea. And, you know, I think that of the places where he could go, Sacramento is definitely somewhere that, you know, he can can really be a huge positive contributor without, you know, having to be a huge part of the offense. But, you know, how much of a part of the offense he would play depends on what the trade package for him looks like. You are 100% correct. I refuse to listen to any trade packages that involve Deer and Fox for Ben Simmons deals. I but, but, you know, the thing is, I mean, not to be unkind, but at this point, the Sixers have literally negative leverage in terms of Ben Simmons trades. So, you know, if it gets to, say, November and, you know, the Kings are four and four midway through November and they've had a couple of encouraging games in that mix, but, you know, I don't know, let's say Buddy Heel doesn't look like he's happy or whatever. Mm. I mean, if the trade package ends up being something along the lines of Buddy Heald, Marvin Bagley, two protected first round picks, and then one of... Halliburton or Davion Mitchell, if that's what it takes, I'd definitely be willing to listen. And I think that's a much better package than the Sixers are likely to get other places. So, you know, I would. Oh, even Halliburton, you'd listen a little bit. I would listen. I would probably hang up, but I would listen. And, you know, especially if it's like, okay, well, if it's Buddy and Bagley and Halliburton, we weren't, we won't ask for any picks or, you know, if they're willing to say buddy Bagley Davion and one future first, I think I would be much more amenable to that, but I'm assuming Mm -hmm. the Sixers wouldn't be, but, you know, I think that there are reasonable trade frameworks for this that make the Kings a clearly better team, you know, in the short term and probably even in the long term, you know, especially if they're, using Buddy Heald as salary ballast, I think that 
both for this team in particular and in general, that Ben Simmons is such a dramatic upgrade over Buddy Heald that, you know, that would, I think, make this team go from, you know, bottom end of the play-in contender to maybe even having a shot at the seventh or eighth seed, especially depending on when the trade takes place. So I would say overall that I uh, err on the side of in favor of a Ben Simmons trade. It can't include De'Aaron Fox, but other than that, you know, it depends on how far Daryl Morey is willing to go down on his demands as it becomes clear that the Sixers have absolutely no leverage in the situation whatsoever. Okay, so I know I said last question, but I just thought of one just now uh, that I have to ask you. I will say, I don't think the Sixers have negative leverage, if that makes any sense. So my whole stance on this is that the Sixers' leverage and Ben Simmons' leverage hasn't changed the minute he passed up that dunk on Trey Young. I think that there was going to be stages that we all saw through this whole through this whole uh, soap opera. And I think those stages have played out. And right now we're just in the stalemate part of it. I think more trades will probably, more offers, I imagine, will open up when the December 15th uh, deadline passes for uh, when we can start trading the new contracts. But this is just, it's just really, I'm wondering, you've been someone, and we've talked a lot about the process over the years going back to our days at hashtag basketball in the early days you know we would muse over Joel Embiid and Giannis and the future of the NBA <laughs> I'm just wondering and I, I hadn't really talked to you since the series that series ended or in the month that the series ended but what were you what were you thinking as you were watching you know a one seed process victory lap Sixers Twitter taking a process victory lap as we love to do every year. What were you thinking as you were watching this whole thing just collapse in the Hawks series? I'm just curious because I know you're someone whose basketball opinion I really respect. And we've had thoughtful conversations about the Sixers and the Kings and specifically Joel Embiid. I'm just wondering what it was like for you watching this team just utterly collapse and specifically Ben Simmons just barf all over himself the last four games of that Hawk series. I was surprised because it seemed like at times this past season that the Simmons and bead pairing was working as well as it ever had. And then all of a sudden the playoffs come around and then just completely gives up on shooting at all. I think not even a part of the rim. Yeah, I think part of the problem, honestly, is that Simmons has a very clear idea of who he is as a player and doesn't yeah. seem all that willing to change any of that. And, you know, if <laughs> if he's the one non-shooter in your lineup, that's fine. But if he's pushing Joel Embiid out to the perimeter because he's occupying the dunking spot... And the and primary the dunker ball spot, handler. Yeah, and then he's not, you know, actually dunking... You know, that's like, if you're going to occupy the dunker spot and just be down low and taking up space in the paint, you know, you should actually do something when the ball is in your hands. And when, you know, six foot generously listed six foot one Trey Young is the guy guarding you in the post and you immediately <laughs> just fling the ball back out to the perimeter. I don't know. I mean, that kind of seemed like, okay, you know, 
this kind of Simmons and Bead setup. This is kind of the last legs of that. And then after Doc just aggressively <laughs> threw Simmons under the bus after the playoffs ended, you know, it's like, all right, well, that's that's kind of the end of the Ben. You're Simmons talking about wanting Luke Walton. You talked about wanting Luke Walton fired. I, I, I was never high on the Doc Rivers hiring. I think he's been coasting, coasting off of that one championship <laughs> with the Celtics. After, after, yeah, he's been coasting on Tom Thibodeau's 2008 championship for years and years and years now. Remember, our starting five hasn't lost a series when fully healthy. That's what he always says about those Celtics teams um, and after he lost the 2010 finals. Um, sorry, I had to do my one doc impersonation for the podcast. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's really, it's really crazy how, just how fast it ended. Like, it just seemed like it just evaporated immediately. All the goodwill from that season was gone. But I guess that's I guess that's what happens. I'm disappointed it didn't work out um, because I do think a lot of Colangelo and the post-Hinky, you know, decisions kind of messed up the roster construction and didn't give Simmons and Embiid the ideal pairing. But his reasonings after it, like, you know, Joel Embiid not being conducive for his game and all that stuff. Like, Simmons was in a great situation last year. Four shooters in the starting lineup, an MVP candidate, and I think it's all, like you said, he has this idea of himself, and I wonder if that's just going to impact. That is the one thing where I wonder if teams have a hesitancy trading for him also. It probably is, but he has this idea of himself, but he's also afraid to fail, and I just think that's that that's just that's just not tenable. But one thing's for sure, if the Kings do trade for Ben Simmons and they're not in the top 10 in pace, I would just fire Luke Walton just off of that. <laughs> if the Kings get Simmons and are not in the top 10 of pace, there might be riots at Golden One Center. And, yeah. you know, that might, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I might, you know, post a sign or something, you know, I probably won't go in the middle of Doko, you know, given pandemic and all that, but you know, <laughs> maybe like go the night before and just tape a fire Luke Walton sign to the side of the building or something. I don't know. But if Ben Simmons can't get this team into the top 10 in pace. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes. But anyway, indeed. that's my one Ben Simmons question. That's it. We're done talking about it. Nick. It's always it's always fun to have you on the pod to talk shop about hoops and the Kings. You know when it, it hopefully we'll uh, see each other in Sacramento. We'll grab a, we'll grab a beer. We'll watch a game. Specifically when uh you know there aren't more variants flying around, <laughs> and you know maybe people will actually uh you know help us get out of this you know pandemic. But it doesn't seem like it, especially with all the quotes that were coming out of media day. I have lost, I've kind of lost faith <laughs> in our ability to all band together and actually perform a base level of human teamwork. But alas, we will see each other in Sacramento. Uh, thank you for hopping on the show. And uh, we'll have you on next time. We'll do a temperature check and see how you're feeling when uh, we're about 20 games in. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Always fun to talk hoops with you. And yeah, at some point in the theoretical future, definitely we will be grabbing a beer and watching a Kings game. All righty. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. Thanks again to Nick for joining the show. It was a lot of fun. Talked Kings for an hour and a half. That's when you know it's a good hoops conversation. <laughs>
talking that long about a team that is talented. I think they can make the play-in. The play-in has made it easier for teams to make the playoffs. I still don't think the play-ins count as the playoffs, but you get you get my point. But thanks to Nick once again. Please follow him at NBA Johnson. Please check out his work at hashtag basketball. Check out the Deep Dives podcast that he hosts. If you want to get primered on college prospects, that is a good podcast to listen to. Tyler and Nick do great do great work over there. Check out his words for Nets Republic as well, because I imagine the Brooklyn Nets are going to be in the mix. Some might say they are the undisputed favorites to win the title. I am one of those people. But check out Nick's work. Thank you, the listener, for listening to this podcast. We have a five-star review. Spread the word if you're so inclined. And stay tuned for the next episode. Until then, deuces. Deuces.